morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and with me, my wonderful two collaborators on this fine Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom for the work he does defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms. By the way, Mike has a great show just before ours on Friday morning at 7 a.m. That's Mike G. in the morning. The law matters. So we invite you to check in on uh, Mike's show. We're in the midst of a series we're calling The Decent Dozen. That is a dozen Supreme Court cases. Actually, we're going to add a little more, so we're going to call it a baker's dozen, but approximately a dozen Supreme Court cases that got it right in the majority. Not, Not perfect. This morning will be an illustration of one that's not perfect, but at least the decision has gone in the right direction, although we might argue with some of the reasoning behind it. In fact, uh, some of the interpretations of our Constitution that this uh, case continues in, particularly regarding the Commerce Clause. But uh, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores was an interesting case in many respects, but primarily because it wrestled with how much the federal government can control what a local business or even you know a business across state lines, what it can do in terms of health insurance for its employees, forced into doing something specific, or can it, you know is there liberty for businesses? And really, I see that as the, the essential uh, issue at, at uh, in play here with Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. Well, my, uh, rather, uh, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on Burwell v. Hobby Lobby stores? Well, some background on this case will be helpful. According to Britannica website, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated was a consolidation of two cases, originally called Sibelius versus Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated and Conestoga Wood Specialties Corporation versus Sibelius. The case names were changed to Burwell versus Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated and Conestoga Wood Specialties Corporation versus Burwell, respectively following the confirmation of Sylvia Burwell as Secretary of Health and Human Services in June 2014. The former case arose in 2012 when David and Barbara Green, their children, and the for-profit corporations they owned, Hobby Lobby Incorporated, an arts and crafts retailer, and Mardell Christian and Education uh, Stores Incorporated, a chain of Christian bookstores, filed suit in U.S. District Court naming Kathleen Sebelius, then Secretary of Health and Human Services, and others as defendants. The individual plaintiffs, the Greens, alleged that the imminent enforcement of a regulation issued by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, pursuant to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, would infringe their rights under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA, which prohibited the government from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion unless the application of the burden is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. The Greens also contended that the regulation would violate the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Okay, let's wander through the intricacies of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated may be the classic example of a case brought to the Supreme Court of the United States, resulting in the right outcome for all the wrong reasons. Britannica website offers this summary of the case. 
Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores Incorporated, legal case in which the U.S. Supreme Court held 5-4 on June 30, 2014, that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 permits for-profit cor corporations that are closely held, for example, owned by a family or family trust, to refuse on religious grounds to pay for legally mandated coverage of certain contraceptive uh, drugs and devices in their employees' health insurance plans. In so ruling, the court embraced the view that closely held for-profit corporations are legal persons under the RFRA and are therefore capable of exercising religion. Let's parse these ideas to see how the law has, be, uh, has been distorted, thereby forcing parties in a suit into time-consuming and expensive uh, litigation. At the same time, let's recognize the absence of equitability in seeking justice when the other party is a member of the government. The costs of legal action either come out of the pockets of a private party or the private party must convince a third party to assume all or part of the cost of the case. Government, on the other hand, operates under no such constraint. These costs are passed through, ultimately chargeable to the citizenry, in the form of taxes or inflation, which is a hidden tax. Now let's take a look at the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, not by reading the legislation, but by following the link at the Britannica site. Here we learn, in enacting the RFRA, Congress codified a constitutional rule, the Compelling Interest Balancing Test, that the Supreme Court had used until 1990 to determine whether generally applicable and re religiously neutral laws that incidentally place a substantial burden on a person's religious practices are inconsistent with a free exercise clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which is Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. According to the balancing test, such laws are unconstitutional unless they serve a compelling governmental interest. In 2000, Congress also added a new statute, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Person Act, which applied the principles of the RFRA to local and state governments. Are you starting to get the picture here? What citizen can be expected to understand all of this law? How many citizens are able to cost-effectively protect themselves against such poorly constructed law? For a moment, let's consider the concept of legality of legislation. Notice a statement in the Britannica description of this case. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 permits for-profit corporations that are closely held, for example, owned by a family or family trust, to refuse on religious grounds to pay for legally mandated coverage of certain contraceptive drugs and so forth. The concept of legally mandated coverage is intimidating for many of us, with the exception of those who took Henry David Thoreau's lesson in civil disobedience to heart, we have been conditioned to obey the law. Here's an example of a law we should all ponder. Marriages between Jews and nationals of German or kindred blood are forbidden. Marriages concluded in defiance of this law are void, even if for the purpose of evading this law, they are concluded abroad. Proceedings for annulment may be in initiated only by the public prosecutor. Some of us will recognize Section 1 of the Nuremberg Laws of 1935 in Nazi Germany. It is a reminder that all laws are not just. 
In fact, the Nuremberg Laws of 1935 were to be considered the legal foundation for the Nazi crimes against humanity revealed at the Nuremberg Tribunal in 1946. The result of that tribunal was that the Allied powers executed 12 of the top Nazis. With that understanding of the limitations of the law, it's time to get into some of the assumptions underlying the federal government's arguments. Britannica's description of the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act gives this background. RFA was U.S. legislation that originally prohibited the federal government and states from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion unless application of the burden is in furtherance of a compelling governmental, governmental interest and is the least restrictive means of furthering that interest. In response to City of Bourne versus Flores in 1997, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held that the RFRA could not be applied to the states, the U.S. Congress amended the law in 2000 to limit its applicability to the federal government. Notice this part of the description according to Britannica. According to the balancing test, such laws are unconstitutional unless they serve a compelling governmental interest. What possible compelling interest could the federal government have in a case in which a firm in the private sector of the economy determined what kind of health insurance it offered its employees? What kind of government would pursue this? Only a government firmly committed to the social engineering agenda of those it believed could help it retain power. Let's take a look at the timeline of legislative, executive, and judicial actions. There is usually a chain of legislative and judicial actions that precedes an opinion rendered by the Supreme Court of the United States. Omitting some of the minor court actions involved in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, consider the, st the steps that preceded the actual Supreme Court opinion. The first, 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was enacted because earlier legislation, probably unconstitutional, was casting too wide a net. 1997 Supreme Court opinion in City of Bourne versus Flores. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act was declared unconstitutional in its application outside of the federal government. 2000 Religious Land Use and Institutional Persons Act, enacted under Congress's Commerce and Spending Clause powers, imposes the same general test as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, put on a more limited category of governmental actions, and RLUIPA amended RFRA's definition of the exercise of religion. In an obvious effort to effect a complete separation from the First Amendment case law, Congress deleted the reference to the First Amendment and defined the exercise of religion to include any exercise of religion, whether or not compelled by or central to a system of religious belief and Congress mandated that this concept be construed in favor of a broad protection of religious exercise. 2010, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. According to the Health and Human Services website, the goals of this legislation were, one, to make affordable health care insurance available to more people, two, expand the Medicaid program, and three, support innovative medical care delivery methods designed to lower the cost of health care generally. According to the Centers for uh, Disease Control website, Section 2713 of the Public Health Service Act, as added by the Affordable Care Act and incorporated into ERISA, 
the Employment, Retirement, and Income Security Act of 1974, and the code requires that non-grandfathered group health plans and health insurance issuers offer non-grandfathered group or individual health insurance coverage to provide coverage of certain specified preventative services without cost sharing. These preventative services include contraceptive care, including screening, education, counseling, and provision of contraceptives. 2012, the Supreme Court opinion in National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius, in which the court found the individual mandate to buy health insurance as a constitutional exercise of Congress's taxing and spending clause, the so-called taxing power. If you are following all of this, then you just don't understand. And it gets more complicated because Burwell versus Hoppy Lobby did not completely resolve the fundamental issues involved. Let's extend the timeline. 2017, Department of Health and Human Services under the Trump administration promulgated regulations that greatly expanded the entities eligible to claim an exemption to the requirement that group health insurance plans cover contraceptive services. 2020, Supreme Court bound for the Little Sisters of the Poor in Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. In November 2017, after the federal government issued their new rule protecting religious groups from the mandate, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and several other states sued in federal court to take away the nuns' hard-won religious exemption. Beckett intervened on behalf of the Little Sisters, arguing that the states have no right to challenge the new rule. Now let's look at the Supreme Court finding in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby in a little more detail. Justice Alito, speaking for the 5-4 majority, concluded his opinion with, with this statement. As this description of our reasoning shows, our holding is very specific. We do not hold, as the principal dissent alleges, that for-profit corporations and other commercial enterprises can opt out of any law saving only tax laws. They, they judge incompatible with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Nor do we hold, as the dissent implies, that such corporations have free reign to take steps that impose disadvantages on others or that require the general public to pick up the tab. And we certainly do not hold or suggest that RFRA demands accommodation of a for-profit corporation's religious beliefs, no matter the impact that accommodation may have on thousands of women employed by Hobby Lobby. The effect of the the health and human services created accommodation on the women employed by Hobby Lobby and the other companies involved in these cases would be precisely zero. Um, under that accommodation, these women would still be entitled to all FDA-approved contraceptives without cost-sharing. So Hobby Lobby won the case, which is a decent outcome. Hobby Lobby, as a for-profit organization, would seem to be a model for any other for-profit organization which has religious re reservations about providing insurance that covers contraception services. But Justice Alito's concluding statement hardly gives us confidence. First, let's recognize that if contraceptive services are to be provided, they have cost, and somebody has to pick up the bill. Hobby Lobby said, not us, because we have re religious reservations. Do we really believe that the insurance company will accept the cost? If none of these is willing to accept the expense, then by process of elimination, we understand the expense has been socialized. That is actually a euphemism. It means that the federal government provides the funding channel 
but the taxpayers must accept the expense through taxation and inflation. It is now apparent that we have entered Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass world, in which Humpty, uh, Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. On the other hand, we can climb back through the rabbit hole to the world of reality by returning to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, which describes the kinds of actions in which states may not engage. No state shall pass any bill impairing the obligation of contracts. The obligation of contracts is described in the common law, existing before the formation of the United States, so it is quite fundamental. There is a counter-argument that might be offered that this limit limitation applies to states and not to the federal government. But did we really create a federal government of limited enumerated powers and at the same time believe that the federal government was granted the implied power to impair contracts? The idea is absurd. Any good physician will acknowledge that treating symptoms alone can only grant the patient temporary relief. To combat the underlying cause of the symptoms requires an understanding of the disease and how it can be combated. We could view Burwell versus Hobby Lobby as a violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, but we would still be remaining at the symptom level. If we need to understand and treat at the disease, uh, uh, treat the disease at the appropriate level, it is necessary to recognize the individual's right to contract has been attacked by the federal government. How this has been accomplished? By deviously distorting the intent of the Interstate Commerce Clause to assert that the federal government has an interest in cases such as Burwell versus Hobby Lobby. To cure these types of patients, we ultimately must resist any effort by the federal government to expand the inter uh, Interstate Commerce Clause beyond its original intent to make the interstate commerce regular and predictable as opposed to the role of the federal government has assumed to coerce individuals and the private sector to do the government's will. Well said, Phil, and thank you for unpacking a very convoluted and complicated case, and, and I think it illustrates what happens when uh, our federal government, rather than simply following the Constitution and the limits that the Constitution places on the federal government, when the instead they decide to expand it, oh boy, the trouble is just endless. And as you, I, I, I appreciate particularly your laying out the history, both legislatively as well as judicially, of the decisions made and how those have presented us with with the problem we're facing today. And I appreciate particularly the the thought that um, this is not a cost effective way for citizens to protect their rights, because obviously Hobby Lobby went to great expense to actually take this case all the way up to the Supreme Court and actually have a win at the Supreme Court. And I like also what you, uh, you know, quoted Lewis Carroll there. And I think there's a, an additional discussion that Lewis Carroll presents that is important to remember because as Humpty Dumpty basically says, when I make a word say what I want it to mean, that's what it means. And Alice actually responded to Humpty in that, that interchange and said, well, can you make a word mean anything you want it to mean? And Humpty's scornful response to her is, it is a matter of who is master, that is all. <laughs> and, and he's actually stating what we see here with the federal government. Who is master? And the federal government has decided that it is master of every contract in America. In fact, when you enter into a business contract, you enter into an employment contract, which is really what is 
you know, in view here in Hobby Lobby, the employment contract with every person who Hobby Lobby hires, sadly, it's no longer a contract between two individuals contracting. And that, in our founder's view, was what the sacred nature of a contract was. Two people come to an agreement, you know, they usually will put that agreement on paper, not just a, a shaken hand, but they'll put down what they're agreeing to. The employee is agreeing to do this sort of work and in return receive this sort of compensation and so on. And the employer is making that that agreement, entering that agreement as well. But the problem is now the federal government, as well as obviously every state government, even county governments, have stuck their nose into every one of those contracts. And you're no longer just entering a contract with your employer. You're entering a contract that is controlled by the federal government, the state government, and perhaps even the local government. This is not at all what our founders meant when they talked about uh, interstate commerce, that is uh, uh, the limitation that the, that the federal government could impose on transactions that are happening across state lines. And we need to understand there's a huge difference because the Constitution does distinguish between interstate, that is goods that are going to cross state lines, and intrastate. Intrastate is something manufactured, produced in the state, and it doesn't cross state lines. Uh, when that original sale takes place or that original financial transaction takes place. So, you know, if you're there in Pennsylvania and you produce widgets and you sell those widgets to customers in Pennsylvania, that's intrastate commerce. It hasn't crossed state lines and therefore the federal government, according to our constitution, has no authority to regulate anything that happens within the boundaries of your own state. Now, of course, we studied this uh, earlier in our, in our uh, dirty dozen cases, uh, in uh, the case where the federal government basically claimed a, a, a wheat farmer feeding his own wheat to his own pigs on his own property. And none of those pigs crossed state lines, by the way. Nonetheless, they said, no, 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 the Commerce Clause means that we can regulate. Uh, and poor, poor Roscoe had to suffer uh, what the federal government claimed. It could control what he did on his own property with his own wheat and with his own hogs that had nothing in any sane interpretation of that situation, nothing to do with interstate commerce. Nothing is crossing state lines. So what we have is a federal government who's decided it, like Humpty Dumpty, can define what it means by that word interstate and define it in a way that was not at all what our founders meant when they put interstate commerce into our Constitution as a power that we, the people, were granting to our federal government. So Really, the, the question goes back to a whole theory of the Constitution. Who were the original contracting parties? Well, it was the states, originally the 13 states that entered into that union and having separated themselves, that is, having seceded from the Articles of Confederation government, they were forming a new government under this Constitution, a new union. And the terms of that union and the terms of that were what they, those who entered that union, those who ratified their, uh, the Constitution for their state, each state had a ratifying convention, ratifying convention debated the Constitution and made a decision for their state to either adopt the Constitution or not to. And ultimately, all 13 original states did adopt the Constitution. And their understanding of the Interstate Commerce Clause is very clear. It is the federal government can regulate but only when some goods cross state lines. Now here, we have a situation, Hobby Lobby, because they operate, I think, most of the states in the union. I don't know if it's all 50 states, but anyway. So there's an argument, so, well, it's interstate commerce, but is commerce, 
involved in, therefore, the contract that each of those employees forms with the government? And does that contract mean that the federal government can regulate the health care benefits that Hobby Lobby chooses or chooses not to give? And of course, from Hobby Lobby's perspective, the whole issue was they didn't want to be funding abortion. You know, as Christians, the Green family that uh, is the primary owner of that, the primary uh, stockholder, they did not want to be forced to fund abortions as part of their health care. That's where the whole battle began that, that resulted in them taking it all the way to the Supreme Court. And rightly so, they should not, as a company, be forced to be involved in the murder of babies. It's one of the most egregious things that anybody can uh, do. So the, the whole case, the fact that came to the Supreme Court, and we believe the Supreme Court did right in that they did say Hobby Lobby is not going to be forced to provide uh, contraceptive as part of uh, part of their health care plan for each employee. But the whole scheme that, that resulted in this is a distortion of the interstate commerce clause that goes way back in the history of our country, primarily to about 100 years ago, uh, when FDR began an attempt to pack the Supreme Court to get his New Deal, an unconstitutional thing. By the way, every element of the New Deal, deal was being struck down by the existing Supreme Court because they recognized these are not constitutional things. So he attempted to pack the Supreme Court, did not ultimately succeed, but he did ultimately, uh, you could say, scare them into changing their position. And so they began to say, well, yeah, these New Deal uh, opinions, these New Deal interpretations of the Constitution will be uh, permitted. And so from that point forward and uh, from FDR's reign and uh, his distortion of our Constitution, we have multiple examples of these violations that have taken place. So the question is really, is there a solution to this problem of getting uh, the nose out of the tent of employment contracts of the federal government and say, no, the federal government can only regulate uh, goods when they're crossing state lines. It has nothing to do with regulating the contract that employer and employee enter into. By the way, this is a biblical concept that there's only two parties to an employment contract. And it's actually a concept that Jesus taught in the parable. You remember the parable, it's often called the 11th hour parable that uh, uh, this uh, farmer went out in the morning to hire people at sunup to work in his field and work in the harvest. And he hired them for the full day. They agreed on a wage, let's just call it for our sake, a dollar a day. So they agreed to be hired and they were. But then later he went out at nine o'clock in the morning, three hours later, he found more workers looking for work and he hired them. But he did not tell them exactly what he would pay them. He just said, I will pay you what is just. So he was going to be the one that would determine the standard. They were ending, entering kind of an open-ended contract. They didn't know exactly what they were going to get paid. And likewise, he hired people at noon. He hired people at three. And just before, an hour before the workday ended at sundown, they worked from sunup to sundown, he hired the last group of people. And then when it came to paying, and by the way, in that day, they paid every day. You, you got your paycheck at the end of the day. Uh, you collected what you, you were owed. This whole, this landowner did a reversal. He put the last people hired, the 11th hour folks, he put them first. And he paid them a dollar. The amount that he agreed to the folks who were going to work the entire day from sunup to sundown, the 12-hour day. He paid them a dollar because he chose to. And he was free to determine what contract. And then he paid everyone else a dollar as well. And the people who worked the entire day were very angry with the with the landowner. They said, this isn't just, this isn't fair. You paid them and we've worked in the heat of the day and so forth. They complained and complained. And you could almost hear that, you know, they're ready to form a union here. You know? But Jesus said, hey, 
the the lesson here is that the landowner has a right to form whatever contract he chooses with whomever he hires and no external standard can be imposed to force him to pay people as you know the, the 12-hour workers they want to pay proportional hey if you're going to pay them a dollar for working one hour you need to pay us twelve dollars because we worked 12 hours jesus says oh, no you misunderstand the employment contract he had entered a contract they agreed to the contract he fulfilled the contract and they should have nothing to complain about in other words those who own property those who are in business those who hire others they get to choose what that contract looks like and it might not look like the same contract for each and every employee wow what a radical idea jesus has is completely contrary to what most people in our day uh, think uh, employment ought to look like and the, that's part of the problem because we think there ought to be what we deem to be a fairness standard we then fall into the trap of inviting the government, federal, state, and local governments to be part of the contract. And we wind up with the, you know, the kind of mess that Hobby Lobby wound up with. And I believe we lose a great deal of our freedom as a result of not accepting Jesus' standard that the property owner, the business owner, they can form whatever contract they choose as long as the person choosing is free to enter the contract or say, no, I'm not, I'm not happy with that contract. I'm going to go find somebody else to work for. That that ought to be the standard. Everyone has uh, the freedom to enter a contract uh, as they choose. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts here on uh, uh, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. I appreciate it. I will say this about the case. I want to talk a little bit about something that I generally complain about, but it seems right up your alley and right up Phil's alley. You know, we often have discussions about the scope of Supreme Court ruling, and I understand that we're all in agreement about the dangers and impropriety of legislation from the bench. I think you and Phil take a different take than I, and that you tend to suggest that the court should decide each and every individual case on their merits alone, and that the holding should not impact anybody else, even if they may be similarly situated. As someone who deals with this stuff every day, this can pose a problem in many situations. For example, if the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case had no impact on the rest of the country, we wouldn't have had places like New Jersey and Maryland finally afford their citizens the opportunity to protect themselves beyond their front door. Instead, now places like Maryland and New Jersey can no longer get away with demanding someone show extreme justifiable need, which is totally subjective, as to why they need a license to carry firearms. And of course, when an anti-gun government decides who really needs to be able to protect themselves, they're completely unreasonable and deny everybody who isn't politically connected, because that's how they decide whose lives are most valuable. And as it is, you still see anti-gun states rushing to pass new gun control laws to try to whittle away at whatever freedom came from the Bruin holding. And these oppressive governments know that it's going to take people years to ultimately litigate these issues. If the holding of Bruin didn't impact them all, then each and every person affected would have to try to litigate each and every single issue. That would be expensive because lawyers can't work for free. And we can say the solutions to vote these legislators out, but guess what? The people who voted them in actually like this. They don't care whether these measures are constitutional. That's not going to motivate these people to elect somebody new. You might say that there should be some kind of impeachment or disciplinary action for the legislators. Well, okay. To be carried out by whom? Their cronies who vote right alongside them? It's simply not going to happen in these areas where the left has the majority. Another important point is that when you have a holding on an issue, it also allows for predictability 
which really benefits the client. It would be very difficult to say to a client, hey, here's how I think the law should be applied. The court has previously ruled for it, but that's no indication whatsoever as to whether it will rule that same way. Or on the other end, hey, the court ruled against this interpretation last time, but that doesn't mean they'll do it again even if nothing has changed. That would be a huge investment of time and money for such a gamble from the client's perspective. When you think about it, even the weatherman relies on pattern. Not to mention the fact that the legal system is backed up enough as it is. If we had to litigate the same issue a million times, it would certainly get worse. Now, that doesn't mean that if the court has ruled against an issue at one point, it can't bring the same issue or a similar issue back to court. But you have to be able to articulate to your client why the court would rule any differently this time. Maybe it's because the facts in this case are different than the last one. The argument would be, hey, court, that same reasoning shouldn't apply to this case, and here's why. Maybe it's because something else regarding legislation or case law has changed since that last holding. Maybe it's because you sincerely believe that the last case was decided wrong, and you have a better argument as to why, one that was not raised in the last case. Old cases get overturned all the time, so precedent is not the end of the road, but it's important and valuable information for the client have that going in to understand the risk. Now, in this case, the court was very explicit that this is a very narrow and specific holding, that the court was not going to get into a whole host of issues and that it shouldn't be construed to stand for some over broader principles that were discussed by the dissent. So in that regard, it would seem that this is a positive for the Pastor Whitney and Phil school of thought. It's not the main objective of our discussion today, but I think it's worth at least mentioning. Perhaps the idea is that the most narrow holdings prevent unnecessary judicial intervention into every single issue when they've obviously received the stamp of approval by the legislature and, in turn, the constituents. Now, Phil, I took a look and wanted to mention that multiple cases have held that Article 1, Section 10 does not apply to the federal government, and we could also get into what kinds of actions the courts have held to constitute impairments because the courts have analyzed when an impact is no more than a collateral consequence. So with that kind of an interpretation and the amount of time that has passed since that's been litigated, maybe we've got an opportunity to argue against some precedent that's already in place. everything, right? <laughs> there is... Uh, exactly. Exactly. Right, there is. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, and and if, if we had stuck with the original interpretation of the Commerce Clause, none of this mess that we're involved in currently would, uh, would be true. But I, I, I look at it, and I think you're right, that many people have voted for this. They want the government involved. They want the government to be deciding the employment contract that they can get with you know, a particular company that they want to work for, rather than saying, no, no, Let's just allow the free market to reign and people get to choose who they work for. They get to choose what their contract is and uh, everybody should shut up and stop yelling, it's got to be fair. It's got to be fair. It's like, no, it doesn't. Uh, if private property really means private property, if ownership of a business really means you own the business, then you should be able to make decisions about what your every single contract is. And it doesn't have to be standardized across the board and everybody uh, paid the same wage or that's communism. You know, everybody get the same. No, no, no. Let's try freedom rather than that kind of, a, a, you know, dictatorial top down one size fits all. Because if the communists have their way, everybody gets the same paycheck. Well, they call it now what uh, AOC is calling it. That communist calls it uh, universal basic income. 
Everybody gets paid exactly the same money, no matter what you do, or if you don't do anything at all, you just get paid the same. Yeah, that does not Let's say at we're all in the middle uh, of a, a the chess game. Just for example, ideas of our founders. we're ten moves in, and we had the opportunity to erase a move because we thought it was a bad move. Well, if the first nine moves were bad, <laughs> even if we erase the last one and we say, "Oh no, this is this has gone in the wrong <laughs> direction," uh, we're still in some pretty bad shape, and I think that's where we are. As far as, uh, you know, as you were talking about with the Commerce Clause, ultimately, I spoke to uh, a young lawyer earlier in the week, and he was informing me that when he took the bar, the the most prominent gotcha question they had in the essay portion had to do with specific enumerated powers. So the, the bar examiners were expecting these folks who were going to be licensed to practice law to completely botch that question. Because they were unfamiliar with Congress's specific enumerated powers. That's how bad it is. <laughs> There's a, they've never sat down and actually read and studied Article 1, Section 8, saying, okay, these are the things that Congress can't do, and if it's not on the list, these are the things, excuse me, Congress can do, and if it's not on the list, they can't do those things. Yeah, that's a, a foreign concept to most people, not just those in the practice of law, but uh, most Americans, I think, have submitted to the idea that, well, you know, the government can basically do whatever it wants to do as long as thinks whatever it's doing is somehow in our best interest. <laughs> we saw what that looked like in 2020 when the government says, your best interest is you don't get any sunshine. Stay locked in your home and we're going to prescribe a poisonous jab for you to take. And we uh, we strongly urge you to take this. Oh, by the way, wear the face diaper everywhere you go, including when you're driving in your car. I still see, by the way, this is just one of those things that amazes me. People driving in the car by themselves, nobody else in the car, are wearing a face diaper. It's like, well, they have they have bought the lie. But anyway, I, I, I think too many people in our land do not prefer liberty. They really like the nanny state. They want to be told what to do every moment of every day. And they're happy with that. Well, I'm not. And I, I wish and pray that we could raise up a, a grassroots movements of citizens who say, enough with a nanny state. We don't want any more nanny state. We there are people who like it. We can take there are care of ourselves. Who don't, don't like it, like you mentioned. A state. I wonder how many people are still around that maybe don't necessarily mind it, but are unaware of how wrong things have gone, and they're just simply ignorant to that fact. Uh, like they might be able to identify that perhaps move number nine on the chessboard uh, went in the wrong direction, but they've got no idea why one through eight were wrong. And uh, I, I, I just. I'm, don't know how many people fall into that camp. Maybe you or Phil have some kind of thoughts on that. Phil? Well, my, my thoughts are that the, the problem really is, in sadly, in, in the lack of civic education in our country. It used to be part of every, every uh, student's uh, training as they came through middle school and especially in high school that they would be trained in our founders' view of law and government that really is expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, three essential points. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him, and the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights. And that limits what civil government, federal, state, and local, that limits it to a very small number of things, and it promotes tremendous liberty and tremendous freedom. And by the way, that freedom means you have freedom to succeed, or you also have freedom to fail. I know that you might start a business, and, and it goes belly up, and you go bankrupt, and there's consequences. So Freedom is, is, you know, saying that you are responsible for your actions and the, and the consequence of those actions. And uh, I, I prefer liberty, but I think so many people have been trained to prefer socialism 
where the nanny state will take care of you from cradle to grave. I don't know, Phil, your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that uh, you could go all the way back to Plato, who, who recognized the, the basic problem here, that uh, uh, if, if people have the power, uh, they're going to be very, very short-sighted. And all they're interested in is, what's in it for me? And it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of discipline, I think, uh, for society uh, to understand that they have to be critical in their thinking and, and think not just in terms of their, what is immediately in front of them, uh, but the longer-term consequences and, and the consequences of any uh, governmental action um, on other people as well. And, and this is where I think the Christianity could lead the way because uh, Christianity is, is not about uh, what's in it for me. It's, uh, you know, uh, we're all brothers and sisters, and, and we have to look out for each other. So I, I think that you are right, uh, uh, Pastor Whitney, that, that uh, uh, it is a matter of education. Uh, actually, the, the education has to begin in the, in the family, but if the family, if the parents have been uh, trained in an opposite direction through socialistic or progressive education to believe that, that uh, uh, no, no, we Everybody should seek their own, you know. Uh, it's me against the world. Uh, then you're not going to get very far. But if if you have that tradition in society, and this requires, I think that that government education back off on issues like this, and you know, let the churches and the family uh, formulate the rules. I think we'll all be a lot better off. Uh, and my sense for this is that the vast majority of people are not evil in their intent. Basically, they just are ignorant. Uh -huh. uh, they have not been exposed to that discipline that's necessary. Yes, and, and sadly, I think you're, you're right with the education issue that most parents just have, up to this point in time, I think there's some change that has happened as a result of 2020, they've just trusted that the government-run education was going to give a, a good education to their children, but the evidence now is that that's not the case. And by the way, uh, here's one objective way to measure American education against how the education of other countries around the world. Every three years, there's a test that's done on science, math, and technology, those kind of issues that don't depend upon a person's language or their culture. So they can be done internationally. And so this te test done, done internationally really measures how well a particular country is doing in terms of educating their, their children in math, science, and so on. And the United States of the developed nations is next to last place consistently for decade after decade. It's not just something that's happened recently. Decade after decade, and ironically, of those developed nations, when you look at the per capita spending per student, it's higher than any nation. In other words, we spend more money for education in America per student than any other country in the developed world, and we get the worst results for that money. So you have to say, what's gone wrong with the education system? And I believe it's what happens whenever you have a monopoly, and this is uh, public education is a monopoly. I don't participate in it in terms of sending my children to it. I wouldn't ever do that, do anything to avoid that, but I still have to pay for it through property tax, and that's where the rub is in my view. We need to break the monopoly of government-run education because it's highly expensive, it's extremely inefficient, and it produces the worst result, and that's just not my opinion. That's what the testing shows on an international level that our education system among the developed countries of the world is the worst. And pouring more money is not going to solve it because obviously it's the teachers unions and the whole 
There's a whole system in, in place that's, that's destroying the minds of children. Instead, we need to allow parents to have the liberty to keep their own money, not vouchers and all this other. No, no, no. Don't take the money from the parents in the first place. And so instead of defunding the police, what we need in America is to defund the public education system. Let everybody choose how they want to educate their children. Let them keep that money, make that decision. So we should break the link, in my view, between property tax and public education. So no, if you I, don't have any kids, sorry. you don't have any, you don't have any expense because you're not, you're not part of the system. Only if you choose that system do you get to pay for it. You know, I think we could benefit by going back to the Northwest Ordinance because the Northwest Ordinance was kind of unusual in the sense that it, it this was federal uh, property, if you will, that was being uh, set up for use with certain rules that were established by the the uh, Congress of the Confederation the original confederation, by the way. Um, and essentially what they did was to allocate space uh, for uh, education. But they did not go beyond that to say that the, the federal government had control over education or that even the, the local people had control of education. Uh, they, they only specified that educational facilities would be available. I mean, the, the space could very well have been allocated to, to private education uh, uh, given certain rules. I mean, they left that whole thing open. And that's the way I think we ought to be looking at, at education pluralistically. In other words, allow different systems to coexist side by side and even cooperatively. There's no reason why, for example, if, you, if you're going to have a governmental system of education, you shouldn't have, let's say, home education. Uh, uh, work with that system in, in the sense that uh, perhaps uh, the certainly the facilities for uh, 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 physical activity, uh, gymnastics, gym, I uh, should say, uh, uh, you don't want every family having a gymnasium. You know, okay, fine. So the community takes that on and maybe the community is better at providing laboratory facilities that individual groups could pr provide. So there is a way to work cooperatively and pluralistically, and we have not nearly uh, begun to explore those possibilities. And we've just simply accepted the idea that the monopoly is going to give us a good result. <laughs> and never, monopolies always give you the highest price for the goods and the poorest type of goods or, or services. And that's what, what we see there. So I, I'm all for uh, breaking that monopoly and setting the parents and setting the children free to uh, choose what's the best best route for their education. But we, we see some encouraging signs in that direction. Obviously, during COVID, many parents for the first time got a little window into what was being taught their children, you know, because their children were all online and, you know, the parents were home because they had to work from home and all that, that craziness of COVID. So they got a window and they said, wait a minute, they're teaching critical race theory. They're teaching these kids to be Marxist. They're teaching you know, uh, gender dysphoria. They're teaching all kinds of things that the parents were horrified by. And the number of homeschoolers after COVID was ended and, you know, schools uh, uh, were opened again, the number of homeschoolers doubled in our country. I don't know the exact number of private school increases, but I did find a fascinating statistic recently of, I think it was four states in the union. They, they, could not find out what happened to well over a hundred and I think it was like 150,000 students just simply disappeared. That is, the parents stopped reporting. They didn't send them back to the public school, but they didn't report we're homeschooling them or we're sending them. They just said they went silent. And so it's like there's a whole 
bunch of children that kind of just disappeared off the government records because most most states want to keep close tabs on every child, even if the child is being homeschooled or going to private school. They want to know where they're going and they want to have some uh, some fingers of control in the education of those children. But a whole lot of parents who said, we're fed up with this entire education system. We're no longer even reporting uh, what what our children are doing. And we, we did this long before COVID. We never reported anything. And uh, therefore, we weren't, weren't part of the system of, of reporting to the state government about what we were doing regarding the education of our children, because that was our business. According to the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, God charges the family with the education of children, and it's no business of the federal government, state government, or county government. They should keep their nose out of the business of something that God gave to the family government and not to the civil government. Well, there's a reason, I think, for uh, education to be decentralized and moved away from, from government-controlled education. Uh, basically, all governments will, will fall back on uh, the party line, if you will, and it's very top-down and hierarchical. It's what you are to believe according to the governing class. Uh, it's just a natural inclination of, of, uh, of government, if you will. And so that translates into a certain form of, of education. Um, you're not necessarily talking about facts. You're talking about interpretation of facts. And when you, when you look at the alternative, kind of a free market uh, education, what is the central idea? The central idea is teach the student critical thinking. In other words, don't don't tell them what to think. Show them how to think. Show them how to question ideas that are brought down as being gospel, you know, and and allow them to come to their own conclusions. And then therein lies the problem. I mean, I I can see over my lifetime, for example, the huge difference in education. Uh, government education, um, when I when I was a a young person, uh, was not as as oppressive as it is now. I mean, there were very, very limited uh, rules that came down from the state, and and the the teachers really had the opportunity to impose their their own ideas on education. And most of the the uh, teachers that that I was exposed to encouraged critical thinking. They didn't they didn't force you to think the way they did. You know, yes, you you had to pass certain exams, but uh, uh, still there was a great deal of leeway. It's been since that that earlier period in time that the government has become much, much more forceful in in asserting this is what you must believe. And I think that's the perspective people need to remember that when the government is in charge of the education, it has its own goal in educating the children. And it may not be the goal the parents would have for their own children. So, for example, many of those who founded public education, people, when they, when they talk about founding public education began in the 1830s, they say, what? You mean there wasn't public schools before? No, there was no public schools before 19, uh, 1830s and uh, really 1850s is when it took off. But many of those uh, who looked philosophically and structured what became the public government-run schools turned to Prussia. And the Prussian model, and the Prussian model was clear because the Prussians lost the battle with Napoleon and they were very upset about that. And so they determined what we're going to do is we're going to create an education system that is going to serve the state because what the state needs, soldiers who will take orders and do what they're commanded to do in the battlefield, even if it costs them their lives. We just need obedient slaves in the battlefield. And that Prussian model of education was literally what many of the founders of our public education system looked to and structured our system after that system. 
In other words, do what the state tells you, be obedient to every command they issue to you, and don't ever question authority. And Phil, that's really the opposite of what you're talking about, where uh, you're given tools to teach yourself. And I think that should be the goal of a good education, tools to teach yourself, tools to be able to ask questions and think on your own, not just to be a, a robot, a drone doing what the government wants you to do. Yeah, that's very true. That uh, There were basically very few PhDs, I understand, that were granted in the United States uh, through uh, through U.S. colleges uh, in the, the late uh, 19 uh, or 1800s, the late 19th century. And uh, if you if you look at most of the progressives, for example, uh, that they, the academics that led the progressive movement, uh, virtually all of them were trained in Germany, and they were all trained according to the the Prussian uh, approach. They they all absorbed uh, the idea of the the Prussian uh, safety net, if you will. Um, the uh, old age benefits and retirement benefits and, and so forth. And the whole idea was to weld the people to the state. And that's not what our founders' view of our constitutional republic was about at all. Uh, it was protecting God-given rights, which means the students need to be trained as to what those God-given rights are and trained with the philosophy of government uh, that our founders were seeking to establish. And and without that training, and in other words, without a proper civics education, the problem we face is that we have a conveyor belt turning out millions upon millions of students every year who really are little socialists. They don't hold our founders' view. They don't hold the values of our founders. And in fact, they will work to oppose those, which is why we see such crazy things on college campuses today where free speech is shouted down. You don't have the right to talk uh, that way or say those. And there's no free debate going on on the college campus. Wait a minute. I thought college was supposed to be about that, where, you know, ideas would be competing in the marketplace of ideas. And, you know, the best idea wins. I'll know more. It's then everybody's got to conform to whatever the hive mind, the hive mentality is. It's kind of like the picture of the matrix. You've seen that movie of those who are in the matrix, they can't see their way outside of it. It's only those who take the red pill and step outside and realize, wait a minute, there's a real world out here that has nothing to do with that matrix that is abusing us and using us up uh, for, for its own purpose. So we need a grassroots movement across America of people who understand our founders' worldview, understand their philosophy of government, and who are committed to returning us to that constitutional republic. And that's why we exist here at We the People, the Constitution Matters. We invite you to uh, the website, 1180wfyl.com. Check out the podcast. We're right at the bottom of the list there. We the People, the Constitution Matters. We encourage you to be with us. Invite your friends. Uh, join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the People, Constitution Matters.